Well, uh, welcome uh, everybody uh, to this uh, public lecture uh, hosted by LSE Ideas here at the LSE, uh, LSE International History, and I'm very pleased to say the University of Sheffield, with whom we are working on a larger project, uh, lecture series uh, called Rethinking uh, the Cold War. And I'd like to make a very special personal thanks to Dr. Irene Karamutsi, who now works in Sheffield, but actually did her PhD here at the LSE in international history. I am the chair for this evening. My name is Professor McCox, uh, director of LSE Ideas. Now, this is the fourth in a series of lectures on the Cold War, although it's actually not about the Cold War, I suppose, in some ways. The first lecture was called Rebooting the Cold War. The second was called The Imaginary War. The last lecture we did was called World Reimagined and U.S. in Human Rights, which we did here at the LSE. And tonight we have our old friend and uh, I say a crime, my, my criminal in practice, I would call Arnie. You say comrade. Uh, yeah, I know, Trump and China in the Asian century. And uh, so that's, I'm really looking forward to what we say. Now, somebody said to me, well, why is Ideas doing something on the Cold War? And I should remind people that in 2004, which I think now is a long time ago, a very long time ago, nearly 13 years ago. Uh, Arnie and I, when we met, when I first came here, uh, we sat down and said, well, what can we do together? I was in the IR department, Arnie was in international history. And we said, oh, why don't we form a center? Uh, little did I know, and little did he. We called it, by the way, the Cold War uh, Studies Center. We got it through the various committees of the LSE, which took about 100 years. And um, we did rather quickly, I think, if you remember. And so we carried on with the Cold War Studies Centre, based over in what was the East Building, which you can't see any longer because it's been knocked down. And uh, so we carried on with that for about four years until we had an idea, or Arnie may have had the idea, I can't remember which. Uh, it was in your back garden where you lived in Cambridge. said, why did we call something LSE Ideas? Firstly, everybody thinks the Cold War is over, which of course it was. Uh, and secondly, maybe we could do more with a centre which nobody understands the name of, called LSE Ideas, and that's what we did in 2008, seven years ago. So Arnie and I go back a very long way. In fact, we go back even further than that because I first knew of Arnie and met Arnie when I was in Oslo at the Nobel Institute back in 2002. And before that, of course, Arnie's first job was actually at the Nobel Institute, which apart from awarding the Peace Prize, also has a, had a fine and still remains, uh, retains a very fine Cold War Studies Center there. So Arnie has a very long uh, relationship both with the school, with international history, and of course with myself and of course with uh, LSE ideas. He made the unfortunate decision a couple of years ago to go across the water to an unknown university called Harvard in an unknown city called Boston in an unknown country called the United States of America. And I've been warning he should never have done it, but he actually seems rather healthy yeah. at the moment. But we're going to try and bring him back. <coughs> Uh, Arnie, at the moment, is uh, the S.T. Lee Professor of U.S.-Asian uh, Relations at Harvard, uh, where he teaches at the Kennedy School of Government. Uh, Arnie, of course, is a, is a wonderfully well-published uh, author. His great book on the global Cold War, The Third World Interventions and of Our Times, which was awarded uh, many prizes, uh, including the Bancroft Prize. Uh, he was the editor with Mel Leffler of the University of Virginia of the Cambridge History of the Cold War, uh, and is also author, or co-author, I should say, uh, uh, now in its sixth edition of the Penguin History of the World. And, of course, in 2013, he wrote his uh, 
best-selling book, Restless Empire, China and the World Since 1750. And this year, in July, uh, he's bringing out a book with Penguin called The Cold War, A Global History. Is a that world history. A world history. Sorry, I, I was, I was, I was, I was under, understating it. Um, a world history, a, a whole world history. So, it, Ani, personally, it's wonderful to welcome you back to your old stamping ground uh, on this stage where you and I have performed many times before. And I think we should give our, retur our, ret our returning warrior uh, from Harvard, from Trumpland, a very, a very welcome, great LSE welcome. Arnie, it's great to have you back to talk on Trump, China, and the Asian century. Ladies and gentlemen, Arnie Wester. Good evening, LSE. <laughs> Hello. It's wonderful to be back uh, in London. It's wonderful to be back at the school. It's something that I have been looking forward to for a very long time. It's great to see old friends again. Mick, of course, first and foremost. Mick isn't a friend. Mick is a brother. Uh, you know, he's someone I worked with for a very, very long time. Uh, someone who's meant a lot to me as a friend, as a mentor. And I see many other people around here um, who I worked very closely with and who I miss working with. Now, being at Harvard is great. There's many uh, advantages being at Harvard. Lots of things that you can do. Uh, not least getting out of administration has helped me enormously. It's uh, enabled me to, to write a book, as Mick mentioned. Um, it might even make it possible for me to write more books uh, over time. And I like teaching there. But I must say, in terms of its engagement, in terms of its involvement, in terms of its social conscience, and in terms of its global um, engagement, Harvard certainly doesn't steal a march on the LSE. Uh, and in that sense, it is really, really good to, be, good to be back here. So what I'm going to talk about today is it's a fairly wide-ranging lecture. Um, the title is Trump and, Chi and China in the Asian Century. Um, and I have a suspicion that we chose that title in order to show how contemporary relevant what a historian like me uh, has to say is. But the structure of this talk is going to be slightly different from what the title indicates. Now, I'm going to talk a lot about Trump and Asia and about current U.S. foreign policy and its relationship with various countries within the East Asian region in particular. But I also want to look at this in terms of the big picture. And this is something that I learned from Mick and I learned from others when I was teaching here at LSE. Always go for the big picture, right? You want to understand what is really, really happening here, not just what's happening on the surface. And the LSE is good at that. I don't need to remind you of the school's motto, right? You will know that. Uh, so you have to go beneath and beyond. You have to try to understand the broader significance of things. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look at that to begin with. I'm then going to draw a little bit on a new course that I start teaching at Harvard next year on global power shifts, where we look at power shifts from the 4th century BC and up to today. I mean, how uh, power transitions have taken place, the cases in which they have led to conflict, the cases in which they have managed to avoid conflict or at least cataclysmic war, um, and this is a course that I will be teaching at the Kennedy School, but it will have, I think, a lot of students from, from, across, from across Harvard. So I'm going to deal a little bit with that, and then I'm going to try to draw from the couple of cases that I'll um, outline to you 
something that I think is important in terms of the current U.S. administration's approaches to Asia. So that's the format of the, of the lecture this evening, and then we're going to have, I hope, quite a bit of time to discuss. So what is the big picture in terms of the stuff that we are talking about here? Well, the big picture for me is that there is now a transfer of wealth and power from west to east on a global scale that has been on the way for almost a generation. This, I think, is undeniable. It is something that we can see happening, not just with regard to China, which is one part of this picture, but with regard to the Eastern Asian region in total. Of course, it's important to underline that this is a transfer in relative terms. I mean, there is no zero-sum game in this, irrespective of what our current president in the United States is saying. Uh, It's not that the United States necessarily, or Britain necessarily, gets poorer as East Asia gets richer. But what this transfer means is that in terms of the commanding heights of the global economy, and gradually also the things that go with the global economy, there is a transfer from West to East. And that is the framework under which current international affairs between the United States and China and the rest of Asia has to be understood. This is the most significant aspect uh, of this to me. I often use, when I teach at Harvard, an example I've stolen from, from David Harvey, the wonderful geographer teaching, British geographer teaching in New York, where he um, says when he lists the kind of activities that are going on on a global scale, uh, one uh, fact that illustrates much of this, David says that China uh, in two and a half years, between 2011 and the middle part of 2013, poured as much concrete into the ground as the United States did during all of the 20th century. And that tells you something about the scale of what is going on uh, in terms of the um, growth of the Chinese economy. It also tells you something, which I'll, I'll get to in a minute, about the policies of the current Chinese regime in terms of what they want to do in terms of how they want to set uh, things up. Because it's not accidental, as you might guess, that the example is about concrete, and it is about building, and it is about construction on a very, very broad scale, and particularly of infrastructure and and things that go with that. But it also tells you something about dimensions, which I think is is truly important. So then the question, of course, becomes, is the election of Donald Trump as American president a manifestation of this ongoing power shift phenomenon? Is the willingness of many Americans who otherwise should have known better to support someone like Donald Trump as U.S. president an expression of the annoyance at being, as it were, déclassé, at not having the kind of position internationally, or in many cases even uh, within their own country, that the majority used to have? And I think there is something to that. I think, as a number of people writing on Trump's election have pointed out, this is a, it's not a full story, but it is a significant part of the story in terms of the election of, of, of the new president. Americans have so far not declined or changed well, right? Um, and part of the reason for that, a very significant part of the reason for that, is that there has been very little relief for the people who are the most exposed as this transfer takes place. So as I said, 
you know, we're not necessarily talking about a zero-sum game here. And in the case we're looking at now, I don't think we are at all. But for the people who really get to suffer as resources are moved in a different direction, you know, they are the ones that really get into a situation where they find that their own daily-day existence has changed for the worse. That always happens in power shift um, uh, instances, and it certainly happened in the United States. And one of the reasons, maybe the main reasons, uh, main reason why it's happened to the extent that it has in the U.S. Is that, is that there has been so little public relief for the people who have been hurt by these kinds of changes. Very different, for instance, from the U.K. when it was declining in the middle and latter part of the 20th century, again, on the, in, a relative, in a relative sense as a, as a world power. I gave this lecture, of, or a variant of it, up in Sheffield, last night, which is a wonderful place to talk about power shifts. Right? <laughs> you can't pick a better place than this. And it was thanks to our friend Irini Karamusi who, who invited me. But think of Sheffield. So after a very successful late 19th and early 20th century, when heavy engineering industries made Sheffield, in many respects, the envy of the world in terms of output, in terms of what could be produced, they had a very rough 20th century. As jobs went away, as industries became outdated, as things changed. But much of the result of this, not all of it, I mean, people are still very unhappy, uh, but much of it was abated by a public sector coming in to replace at least parts of the private sector as that receded. That's what Britain did in the latter half of the 20th century, and that's what the United States has not done as it is declining as, a, as the predominant global power. I think this matters. I think it matters enormously when you think about it on a global scale. Because what other power shifts cases tells us is that very often when a great power that is in decline gets into serious trouble, existential trouble, that happens from within. It starts from within. It's not because of the challenges that it meets within the international system. It is an undermining of the legitimacy and the core cohesion of the state within that country itself. And in that sense, the election of Trump is certainly a warning sign uh, for the United States. What will it lead to on a, on a global scale? I think the most likely outcome of the election, at least if Trump sticks with part of his election promises, is a gradual U.S. retrenchment in terms of its involvement overseas. Now, it is, of course, possible that Trump may end up in a very different place than the program that he was elected on. And a lot of people, both those who like that and those who dislike it, are now indicating that that will indeed be what happens. What was it that one of the Republicans in the Senate just said that Trump said that he would, he would drain the swamp, and instead the swamp has drained him. Um, I'm not too sure. I mean, I think for any politician has his eye on his chances to be reelected, And I think for Trump to move too far away from some of the things that he promised to his core supporters during the election campaign would be difficult. Mm. And that's the reason why I still believe that it's very likely that the Trump presidency will mean in some form or another, a gradual retrenchment of U.S. power 
on a, on a global scale. But before we get to that with regard to Asia, let us look at a couple of other power shifts. So uh, much of what I was doing at LSE, what Mick has been doing and others who have been teaching at the school have been doing, is to try to convince people that history matters for understanding current international change. And that's what I'm trying to teach my students at Harvard as well. And without understanding historical trajectories or indeed historical comparisons and similarities and dissimilarities, it's very hard to understand what is going on today. And that's the reason why I set up this new class on, on power shifts, from which I'm going to use two examples in order to illustrate some of the issues that come into play as power shifts take place. The first one is not going to surprise you at all. Um, this is what my Kennedy School colleague, Graham Ellison, refers to as the Thucydides trap. The Peloponnesian War and its effects. So Thucydides, as I'm sure all of you know, right, uh, was an ancient warrior and scholar. He was someone who fought in the Peloponnesian War um, and he was someone who wrote about it afterwards. If you read one book and one book only about war, read Thucydides, because he catches both many of the reasons why war happens, but he also catches the disasters that come out of war. He basically says in his book that it's not all that difficult to get into a war, but it's bloody difficult to get out. And at the end of it, it's very, very rare. He says it does happen, but it's very, very rare that anyone has benefited uh, very much from the outcome. It's a very negative book. It's a very dark book in many ways. Um, what he writes about is the conflict between Athens and Sparta between 431 and roughly 404 um, BC. And my friend Graham Allison at Harvard at the Kennedy School, the head of the Belfast Center, has written a book that's just coming out now called The Thucydides Trap, which is about how to apply that particular conflict on the U.S.-China relationship today. And Graham's overall conclusion is on the first page of the first book of Thucydides' great history, where he says that it was the rise of Athens and the fear that is created in Sparta that led to war. So in other words, uh, you had a status quo power, which in this case was Sparta, and you had a rising power, a rising hegemon, which was Athens, and it was the fear that the status quo power had of the rising power of its rival that led to war. And I accept that that is a very significant part of understanding that particular conflict and understanding a lot of other conflicts, including the rivalry that we have between the United States and China today. Mick has written about this as well, and a number of the people who are actually here in the audience have written about it. Right? Um, but in reality, of course, including in terms of Thucydides' great history, there is more to it than that. Right? So if you read all of the book, I think you find that there are other issues that come into play as well. The difference in terms of ideologies. Very striking between Athens and Sparta. I don't have to go into that. And Athens, a dynamic uh, power that regarded itself as a democracy, and indeed preached democracy on a, on a broad scale. Sparta, 
a very militaristic oligarchy, a, 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 a state that was a slaveholding state that did not emphasize um, anything in terms of its broader ideology um, except the willingness to sacrifice on behalf of the state in war or in other, or in other forms. So two very different ideologies. Very different definitions of interest. Very different alliance systems that the two of them were part of. I'm going to talk more about that later on. But first and foremost, and this is where Thucydides ends, where he, just before he breaks off his account, he breaks it off for reasons we don't know, don't know why. Maybe his publisher told him that he was running out of pages. I don't know. But, you know, it ends rather abruptly. And then he says just before he ends it that it was the rhetoric that both sides used that led to the war. That everyone, and especially young men, talked a lot about war. That was a very significant reason why war happened. And I would fully agree with the citizens on that, not just in terms of this case, but in all the cases that we've looked at. War talk, mainly coming from people who have never fought the war themselves, or never even been close to one, is a very significant part of what leads us into conflicts that then can be seen as unavoidable. Think, think First World War in many cases. Um, think, uh, uh, in some cases, the whole history, the whole trajectory of war. I see one of my other mentors, Mac Knox, sitting, sitting back there, who's written better about this than anyone else that I know. So if you want to use the Peloponnesian War example, I suggest to you, you have to look at it very broadly. You have to understand what the Syrians and other sources actually tells us, which is that what led to war is complex. It's complicated. It's not just about a narrow realist concept of fear or unease, uncertainties, but it's also about how people interact with each other within states, among states, in alliance systems, and the form that rhetoric takes that pushes towards an outcome that no one really believes will happen when, when uh, the confrontation actually starts, before it has become a war. So let's cross from that to look at one of the other examples that I'm using. Very different time, very different place. The United States and the origins of the Cold War. So as Mick said, I've just written a book, um, far too big a book, on the Cold War in a broad perspective, the Cold War in the longue durée, if you like. So it's a book that starts in the 1890s, and it starts with the first global capitalist crisis and the radicalization of significant parts of the European labor movement and the expansion of the United States and Russia as transcontinental empires. And it ends in the 1990s with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War as an, as an ideological conflict. So what I try to catch in that book is to figure out how to understand the Cold War structurally this will appeal to a lot of people at LSE, structurally, within a broad history of the 20th century, not attempting to subsume everything else that happens under a Cold War ideological divide or dichotomy, but to see how that divide influenced and was influenced by 
other things that happen. And I think that's a very meaningful way of trying to look at large-scale phenomena because you don't isolate them. So much history that we do is about narrowing, isolating, moving down into the specific phenomena that you want to study. Sometimes that's useful. But you also need to try to find ways of connecting it to the broader significance of things that are happening. Because if not, you, look, you lose track of the broader causes for change, particularly international change. So in terms of the United States and the origins of the Cold War, what I would say is that we are here facing a very different kind of international scenario from what we had with the Peloponnesian Wars. We have two powers that are rising roughly at the same time, the United States and the Soviet Union, rising throughout the first part um, of the 20th century. Now, don't get me wrong on this. I mean, even though I write about two superpowers, I accept that one superpower was definitely more super than the other, right? The United States always had more of a productive capacity, more of an ability to act internationally than what the Soviet Union had. But broadly speaking, and this is where the prehistory of this conflict in the early 20th century comes in, by 1945, these were the only workable, only projectable uh, superpower project standing, right? Because Europe had decided to, to commit collective suicide in two world wars, right? Um, Japan laid with its, its back broken as a result of a war of aggression that, in which it stood a very limited chance of succeeding, even reaching its more limited aims which left uh, in 1945 the United States and the Soviet Union by default as the, as the superpowers. Now, what I think is important with this, if you think about it in a broader power shifts framework, is to understand how revolutionary this was for the international system. I mean, how important it became in terms of creating what came later. And I think much of our misunderstandings of this have come out of this tendency that there has been to regard the United States, like Sparta, as a status quo power and the Soviet Union as some kind of challenger. I think that's fundamentally wrong. The United States was not a status quo power in 1945 or 1941 uh, for that matter. <coughs> it was a revolutionary power. It was a power that was at least as much as the Soviet Union, ought to remake the international system and remake it in the direction that it wanted to see. And when I talk about remaking here, I'm talking about friends and enemies alike. I'm talking about those who ended up being allies of the United States and those who ended up being enemies of the United States or at least in a different camp from the United States. So you could even in a later context talk about two powers that are rising, you know, roughly um, at the same time, which throws up two questions, which are connected in many ways to what I said about the Peloponnesian Wars, but they're still different, I think, in terms of how we need to understand them. The first one is, was coexistence possible under these kinds of circumstances? And the second one is, was peace possible under these kinds of circumstances, right? So let me deal with the first one first. 
in terms of the United States, uh, the Soviet Union, and the Cold War. Was coexistence possible? Or as the Soviets like to say, peaceful coexistence, a term that the United States only took in very belatedly. I think the reality is, if we look at the Cold War as a whole, that coexistence was not possible. And the reason for that was the level of ideological confrontation that was there. And this came from both sides. In the sense that the United States saw the Soviet Union as a deadly enemy, came out of a profound belief of what the Soviets and communists elsewhere wanted to do with the world long term, right? Which was seen as being directed not just against American interests. You can live with having rivals who mess with your interests. But you can't live with having rivals, or at least not easily live with rivals who are going to mess with you in terms of the core promise of your ideology. And I think that was the problem in terms of the Cold War on both sides. This is equally true for the Soviet Union, right? So the idea which many people had during the Cold War, that this was a stable bipolar system that was going to last for a very, very, very long time. You know, I, I remember you know, myself, people in the, in the early 1980s, you know, writing about how the Cold War would last for generations on end because there couldn't be a way out of it. You know, they got that wrong because they believed that the states that represented these ideologies would last forever. But they did not get it wrong in terms of the incompatibility in a broad global sense of the ideologies themselves. Then secondly, was peace possible? And this is important, and I'm going to return to it when I talk in a minute about the situation today. Uh, well, we know that peace was possible because most of us are still here, right? Um, if war had broken out between the two superpowers because of nuclear weapons, most of us wouldn't have been. So peace was possible in the limited sense of a long postponement of direct war between the superpowers. There was a lot of war during the Cold War, much more than we're seeing today, and some people tend to forget that, right? Disastrous wars for the people, people who were hit by it. But there was no superpower war, in part because of the existence of nuclear weapons, but also because we had a gradual regulation of the rivalry between the two powers on an international scale. What I sometimes refer to as the long postponement. Some of you will know John Lewis Gaddis talking about the long peace, which I think is a problematic expression. Certainly if you ask people from, from Vietnam or Angola or Ethiopia or a lot of other places, right? But it was a long postponement of the promise that was baked into this conflict of eventually it leading to some kind of Armageddon in terms of a confrontation between the two sides, which lasted up to the Soviet Union by its own means and by its own devices starting to collapse from within. So that's what made peace possible. Now, I think that using Cold War examples are particularly important in terms of understanding the world today. I mean, Mick referred to one of my earlier books, which attempts to do that, tries to look at how the Cold War on a global scale created the world um, that we live in, live in today. But we shouldn't only focus on the Cold War. I think it's very useful to think about this in terms of 
other conflicts, other power shifts, or other transitions that are taking place in the past. And that's what I'm trying to do um, through this, um, this course that I've been setting up at Harvard. So let us look then at the rivalry between the United States and China today and where it might be going. So it's clear to me, and I think it's clear to everyone who wants to look at this, that the U.S.-China rivalry is already in place. It's not something that's going to be created in the future. It is already there. Um, it is quite possible to argue, as, um, as my friend John Merchheimer does, that the logic of this rivalry will lead to conflict and may lead to war, right? I have no problem with, with accepting that. Though what I find difficult is to accept that it must necessarily be so. And one of the reasons why I find that is that power shifts, and we know this from history, do not always lead to war. I mean, they almost always lead to rivalry and sometimes to intense confrontations, but they do not always lead to cataclysmic war. Even Graham Allison would, would accept that. And it seems to me, based on the cases that we've looked at here tonight, that this depends maybe first and foremost on containing and regulating rivalry, Right? So the more of an understanding that there is between the two sides in terms of the rules of the road, I mean, how to operate, how to avoid a direct confrontation between them, the more of a chance we will have, both short-term and long-term, for this rivalry not leading to, to great power war. And I think that in the US-China case, there are some things, thank God one should say, that pushes us in that direction. Now, the cases that we've looked at also show that it's easier to work out these kinds of rules of the road, these kinds of regulations for rivalry, if the main part of the rivalry happens within one geographical region. And I think it's very likely that that will be the case at least for the next half generation or so in the relationship between the United States and China. It will center on Eastern Asia. Northeast and, and, and Southeast Asia. That's where the rivalry is going to happen. I don't know anyone who works on Chinese foreign policy today who believes in any meaningful form that the U.S.-China rivalry will become global in, in, the, in the form that the U.S.-Soviet rivalry did anytime soon. It might happen eventually, and I think it's quite possible that it might happen. But it won't happen soon simply because of the balance of forces between the two sides is so incommensurate, is so um, that the, the, the United States is a far more globalist power, or globalizing power, one could say, uh, than, than what China is, or possibly even, even wants to become. Now, in terms of economics and trade, the kinds of issues that Trump has focused so much on, there are obvious differences, very significant differences, but again, I think it is pretty clear, and we already have some fairly good indications after Trump's and Xi Jinping's first summit, that these can be overcome, right? They will be difficult to overcome. Don't misunderstand me on this. I mean, these won't be easy negotiations. But will these kinds of contradictions lead to war? Very, very unlikely. It's much more likely that some kind of modus vivendi is going to be found between the two sides that neither of them really, really like, but still that will regulate the kind of trade and investment and innovation relationship between the two up to a, up to a point. So therefore, the dangers, the real dangers in my view, 
are in the region. And here we cross from my optimism. I am, after all, at heart a Scandinavian optimist. You know, I like to think that things will go well. Um, over onto the side that is more problematic. And that has to do with the significance and the character of the, the possible confrontation, certainly the rivalries, between the United States and China in the Eastern Asian region. Think Korea, uh, which I've spoken about often before in this room, but now seems to be coming to a head. Right? The Korean conflict, as one of my Chinese friends who works on the Korean, uh, or Korean issues like to put it, is really the conflict from hell. Right? Both because of the consequences that any kind of warfare on the Korean Peninsula is likely to have, but maybe first and foremost because of the great power implications. I mean, some of this has to do with geography, pure and simple, where Korea is. But it also has to do with the overall relationship, no doubt about it, between the United States and China. But there is also the conflict in, in the South China Sea, which is maybe not entirely intractable, but very, very difficult. I mean, China has been throwing its weight around in the South China Sea now for a fairly long period of time, with the result of many of the local actors being deeply concerned about what China's long-term aims are. I mean, even people like the somewhat, um, uh, let's put it mildly, difficult to evaluate President Duterte in, in the Philippines, um, is someone who I think has made it pretty clear over the last month and a half that he doesn't want to be pushed around by China on South China Sea issues, right? in spite of his hopes of a better relationship between the Philippines and, and, and China. So this affects everyone within the region uh, to a very, very high extent. Is it as dangerous as a meltdown over North Korea would be? I don't think so, because, again, I think it is easier to regulate. It's easier to intervene in this in a more, in a more positive sense. But it could have enormously dangerous effects if there is some kind of military confrontation between one or several of the claimant parties within the region. And here I'm thinking maybe not so much about the Philippines, but I'm certainly thinking about Vietnam and the Vietnamese relationship. To, to China and the United States. And we know that this is a relationship that Trump is very preoccupied with trying to find a way of, of stating a clearer and probably also um, a, a, um, a firmer U.S. policy with regard to. And then there is the, the big issue of Japan and the relationship between China and Japan. Um, It'll be very interesting to see how the Trump administration is going to handle this. I mean, the indications so far are that they are going to try to tread a very difficult path between, on the one hand, sustaining, supporting the U.S.-Japanese alliance, but then, on the other hand, try to move away uh, from spending too much money on that alliance and trying to teach the Japanese, that's a term that... Trump used himself in the election campaign, that they have to be responsible for their own defense, at least to a higher degree than what, was the, what is the case today. Now, this is going to be a very difficult balance to strike because of internal um, conflicts in Japan, 
because of the rise in Japanese nationalism, which is real and, and is, is there, but first and foremost because of the rapidly deteriorating relationship between China and Japan, which I think is one of those issues that, if we do not have a turnaround on it, is really going to leave its mark on the first and middle part of this century because of the significance of, of both countries. I must confess, having studied this region for a very long time, that this is one of those issues that I find really difficult to get into. And the reason for that is that when China broke away from its self-centered isolationist development path under Mao Zedong and moved under Deng Xiaoping to a new policy of integration with the world and openness, there was a long period in which the relationship between China and Japan became ever closer. Deng is famous for having said that China cannot rise against Japan. It can only rise with Japan, uh, a point which I think is remarkably well taken. I can't think of two countries, certainly not two neighbors, that have more to contribute to each other's development, more long-term than China and Japan. And even so, particularly over the last decade, we've seen a very rapid deterioration of this relationship, in part over issues that have to do with territory, you know, some um, rocks in the, in, the, in the East China Sea, or in the West Sea, as the, um, uh, as the Japanese call it. Um, but obviously there is more to it than that. There is a more profound rivalry which the Trump administration will have to handle, and so far I don't think I've understood in all of its complexity. There is a very deep fear on the Japanese side that China's rise means that Japan is becoming less significant within its own region, and that Japan is really the power in decline, maybe even more rapidly than its great power sponsor, the United States. And this is a kind of dilemma that leads more directly to the conflict that we talked about earlier on than almost, almost anything else that I can see on a, on a global scale. It could easily end up in a kind of situation where the Trump administration would be faced with a need to act more forcefully on the side of its Japanese allies than any American administration has done over the past quarter century. Now, that would be a real challenge to US, the U.S.-China relationship. So I think we have a series of regional conflicts, and I only highlighted the most significant of them, which very easily could pit the United States against China in a rather acute kind of confrontation, which all three of them have the potential in them to lead to war. I'm most worried about Korea, without any doubt, uh, especially because of what is happening within North Korea itself. I mean, if you think about the situation today in terms of nuclear affairs as being bad, imagine what happened when the, days come, uh, when the day comes when the North Korean regime starts to collapse from within. And I'm absolutely convinced that that day will come. Now, if we are really unlucky, uh, the Trump administration may decide, I mean, if the North Koreans decide to test again, which I think is highly likely, uh, test a nuclear weapon again for the sixth time, that um, the Trump administration will take unilateral military action in some form or another against North Korea. We cannot rule that out. Uh, I think it would be a pretty disastrous thing to do. 
uh, in this sense, I agree with the warnings that have come out of many countries, including China in East Asia, against taking that kind of action unilaterally. But that's not the only scenario. I mean, there are lots of other scenarios which we can talk about later on where things could go badly wrong um, with regard to this. So what I'm saying here is if you want to understand the character of this particular rivalry, you have to look at the region. Because it helps to understand bilateral relations, including trade, including the economic changes that are taking place. It helps. But if you really want to understand it, you have to look at the region. That's where the dangers are. And that's where the dangers, I think, will remain for the, uh, for the next half generation or so. So returning to the, to the bigger theme of this talk, I think the real question right now in Eastern Asia is whether war can be avoided. It's not whether conflict and rivalry can be avoided. I think that's extremely unlikely based on the situation that we have before us, right? Um, pacifism is not going to have... Uh, much of a go in Eastern Asia over the next generation, right? But the big question is, can war be avoided? Um, And I think if, through the kinds of regulatory measures, the kind of approaches uh, that we have talked about in the comparative part of this talk, if that happens it is likely that the U.S. decline as a nation power will happen gradually, will proceed gradually, which would be a good thing, not because I'm necessarily in favor of of the decline in U.S. power in Eastern Asia, because I think it's very, very likely that it will happen anyway, and that it's good for everyone that it happens more gradually than it happens very fast, which is much more likely to, to lead to conflict. It's also very likely that Chinese power will continue to grow uh, within, its, within its region and then eventually also on a, more global, on a more global scale. That goes back to what I said at the beginning of this lecture. But when we say gradually here, we are, of course, talking about the very big picture. A war, of course, would be disastrous. I mean, when we think about this in, in these terms, right, it would upend everything that we think we know about any kind of war, not just a, a great power war. Uh, about what happens within the region. And then on the Chinese side, it's also very likely that there will be setbacks. I mean, this idea that a lot of people have, particularly in the West, not so much in China, of China advancing very gradually into international superstardom, right, uh, is very unlikely to play out that way. Um, There are a lot of potentials for severe setbacks within China itself. It's Credit and finance system is wobbly, and I think there are things that could happen with that even relatively soon that would be very negative for China's future growth. Probably can be overcome, but it would take a long time to deal with it. And then, of course, most importantly, it's politics, which are entirely retrograde. I mean, China's biggest problem is that it's badly governed. It's governed by an elite that have very little legitimacy within the country as a whole, Uh, And that sometimes, because they are so narrow in terms of the kind of references that they connect to, get very, very bad advice. So a China that was better led than what it is uh, by the Communist Party at the moment would advance much more quickly in terms of many of the aims that it would set itself, certainly with regard to its own region, also because it would be more appealing to others, right, within the region itself. 
Um, part of the reason why so many within the region uh, are worried about China, fear China, is not just what it's doing, which sometimes is bad enough, but it's because of what it is. Because it is an authoritarian regime, maybe no longer in reality a communist regime, it's a market-oriented regime, but it is an authoritarian regime, and it projects that image. Right? Think about what I said in the first part of, of my talk about how fear grows. So it seems to me that when power shifts are gradual, when there are strong states to ameliorate the relative outcomes of power shifts domestically, when alliances have socializing effects on great powers, like in the case of the United States, and especially when rhetorics of hate and exclusion are confronted politically within each of the polities that we are talking about here, then there is a chance of conflict leading to war being avoided. But if we have neither of those, and there is a chance under the current circumstances if we look at the world as a whole that we are moving away from these kinds of ideas, then of course uh, things become much more difficult. I think my main message tonight is that in case of rapid power shifts, all of this becomes much more difficult and great power war becomes more <coughs> likely. But even in such cases, politics and leadership are essential. I was listening to a French report just before the election on French political thinking just before the outbreak of the First World War. Um, and a quote that stuck with me from Jean Chaurès, the great French politician who was one of the very few people who were trying to confront uh, the oncoming cataclysm. And Chaurès, just before he was assassinated, he was assassinated just before the war break out, broke out because of his resistance against the war, said that only through the human imagination can the horrors of war be made visible. And I think that's as true today as when he said it right before the outbreak of the First World War. So let us try to use that imagination, I mean, on a broad scale, um, in whatever kinds of settings that we are in. Um, because only, I think, through that kind of imaginative power, we can also conclude that war is always a way of sacrificing long-term gain for short-term security. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Arnie. You were very kind about Donald Trump. We'll get on to that in a moment. Um, one of the words you used in your lecture was rhetoric and the way that rhetoric can overtake uh, reality. And, and maybe we could recast thinking about the U.S.-China relationship in an entirely different way to the realist, to Thucydides, and to some of the things said in the United States, and some of the many things said in China, too, as I know. Why don't we kind of recast the debate around the notion that modern China is one of the greatest U.S. success stories of the 20th and 21st century? China's rise would have been inconceivable without the United States and without the West. That is not a popular thing to say in China because it runs against Chinese nationalism, which I know very well, and it certainly runs against what you hear in, in the United States on both sides. But, 
you know, you and I are historians long enough, and I go back to the Vietnam War, and I remember very well when Kissinger went and did the deal, or Nixon went, and that stabilized Southeast Asia and East Asia after the Vietnam War. Uh, and that was an extraordinary moment in which, you know, China was used, in a sense, to slow down, you know, the, the impact of the Vietnam War. And there's a strong argument to be made that China became the best member of NATO uh, without becoming a member of NATO. In other words, I mean, it held down thousands of uh, Soviet troops. How many, how many Russian divisions were held there? And, and played itself a certain role in the end of the Cold War and the end of the Soviet Union. It was a factor, at least, I think. I think we agree on that. Then in the 1990s, the accelerated movement towards the market was made possible by the Americans keeping their market open, uh, particularly after the crisis of Tiananmen Square in 1989. And then in 2001, the United States accelerated the process of that integration into the world market through... China and the World Trade Organization, the WTO membership, which the Americans pushed very hard against quite a lot of advice, even from the United States. Then, a mass, then you could even say that in the, through the 2000s, if it hadn't been for China's growth, we may have had an even worse Western economic crisis because Chinese growth kept it going, as Danny Kua mentioned. And, and we end up, in a sense, with the greatest American success story of all. We have an American president attacking globalization in order to get elected, and a Chinese president at Davos celebrating globalization. I mean, what a turnaround. I mean, this is surely one of the great American successes, as Henry Kissinger, at least, I think, recognizes how much influence he actually has on Donald Trump. I'm told not very much. So perhaps we need to recast the way of thinking away. I, I mean, I'm kind of realist in, in many respects, but I think why isn't this the narrative which is... Mm determining the way either people in the United States thinks about this relationship mm. or the way they think in China. And after all, 300,000 PRC students studying in the United States is certainly saving a lot of American universities from bankruptcy. Uh, and, and most welcome they are here too as well, of course. It goes without saying. Uh, I wish we had 300,000. We just don't have enough room at the moment. So, you know, this, this is a success story. In, in many regards, but for both sides. Uh, and what, I, what I'm interested in knowing, going back to your word about rhetoric, is why is it never cast in that particular way? Well, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I think you often find this in power shift situations. Mm. Those, and you actually find it mainly, of course, in those that work out reasonably well. I mean, think the relationship between Britain, when it declined, and, and, and the United States. Mm. That... In reality, the rising power takes over many of the attributes, almost never all, but many of the attributes that have been developed during the previous uh, international regime. So this is John Eikenberry's point, in a way, against the, the realist mm. way, of, or neorealist way, certainly, of looking at these mm. things. Uh, you know, that the United States has an interest. I mean, the last thing that the United States uh, want to, the last contribution that the United States want to uh, want to come up with uh, during its period of global hegemony is to decline gracefully and making sure that the up-and-coming powers take over as much as possible of the international system that first Britain and then in a slightly different form the United States mm. put in place. Um, to some extent you could argue that Kissinger's policy was to some extent about that. Exactly. Now the problem is of course that if you do think back to when Kissinger was uh, National Security Advisor and then Secretary of State. He left that office a deeply unpopular man. 
And, you know, in a, in a way, the, the ultimate revenge of his critics was to elect Ronald Reagan, American president, right, who, who didn't believe in any kind of idea about U.S. decline, wanted to confront the enemy as, as, as best as possible. It's very, very hard for countries to decline gracefully. Very often what happens is that you get an upswing in a form of sometimes ethnic Mm. and in other cases more sort of state-based forms of nationalism um, that would undo much of the integrationist policies that a global or a regional hegemon have introduced at the peak of their power, right? I think it's quite likely, I mean, it may not stay that way, Mm. but it's quite likely that that's what we are seeing with Trump today. I mean, Trump does to some extent remind me a bit of Richard Nixon. Also in the sense (laughs) that I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up being impeached, but that's another another matter. No. (laughs) Um, uh, I think the, 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 I mean, what, what, what Nixon tried to do was to get more for the United States within the existing system. Nixon basically said, we've been integrationist enough. We've carried the whole system with us, right? Mm, mm, We've mm. paid for everything. Now other people should pay, you know. We should more look after our own interests, which was a very hard proposition to put forward to Americans during the Cold War, but that probably has more of a resonance Mm. today. Mm. So... That, I think, would be my answer to this. I totally agree with you that I think, you know, uh, China was in many ways the main beneficiary of the Cold War, certainly the way the Cold War ended. Mm. I mean, much of China's tremendous growth over the last three to four decades would have been unthinkable if it hadn't been for consistent American sponsoring of Chinese interests on, on, on a broad scale. And this happened because the United States needed an ally in order to fight the Cold War against the Soviet Union effectively. Mm, right? mm. And then some of it later on, which is a very interesting issue, some of it became institutionalized. Right? Mm. So you have people like, like Bill Clinton and to some extent George W. who are then continuing that line, that, that approach, um, because they think that it will eventually be in... U.S. interest to integrate China further into this mm. kind of system. And the Chinese have been very happy to accept mm. that. Mm. And maybe Trump will accept that too. That's the big question, whether he will. Proceed. So, I mean, the, the big question is, can he do that? Can he move in that direction yeah. while keeping his supporters on board? Okay. Right. I think we're going to get quite a lot of questions. Why don't we begin? Who wants to ask the first question? Uh, there's a question at the front here. We're going to take two at the front. This is... Uh, Joe, what are these questions coming from... Twitter, are they? Uh, that's right, yes. Questions yeah. from Twitter. Uh, so oh, that's news since Twitter. I was here last. Yeah. Yeah. So, Comrade Twitter. So the first question from Twitter is, is there going to be a second Korean War this century? Oh, gosh. Right, okay. We're next. Was that it? Oh, what a miserable question. Um, God. We'll take, we'll take more. Uh, gentlemen here? We'll take a few on it. Yeah, please, sir. Thank you. Uh, I wonder what... Uh, Ani, welcome back. Uh, I just wonder what your thoughts are on the argument that the United States is extremely reluctant to cede any strategic space to China, and China is equally determined to expand its strategic autonomy. What do you think about that? Thank you. Okay. And then the final question over here from Cherry. Cherry? 
Welcome back, Arnie. Um, my question you. is regarding the Chinese domestic politics. So how much Chinese domestic politics could constantly serving as a source of the making of the Chinese foreign policy? What is the proportion? Hmm. Okay, one is there going to be a second Korean War? Yeah, these uh, are small, insignificant questions, of course. Um, take, take, limited. Take ten are. seconds on each. Is there going to be a second Korean War? Well, I mean, if we all behave in the directions that I warned against in my talk earlier on, I think it's very likely there will be a second Korean War. Um, I mean, I, can't, I don't think I can get across to people enough how concerned I am about what is happening at the moment, um, both because of the structural situation on the Korean Peninsula, but first and foremost, of course, because of the existence of nuclear weapons, a significant and at least to some extent deliverable uh, nuclear weapons arsenal within a power that is going to fight to the death for its own survival, right? These people are not going to keel over. They are going to confront people who will maybe not even attack them, but being seen as attacking them, um, using all the means they have at their disposal. I'm going to give, so when I get back to Harvard, Next week, I'm going to do something called the Reichauer Lectures on the, relation, the historical relationship between China and Korea uh, over the past 600 years. The problem with that relationship is that you have two neighbors that are linked very, very closely to each other, but where China's real influence on the Korean peninsula has always been very limited. And I think that is the situation today as well. There have been a few periods where that has not been so, but overall that has been so. So expecting China to sort of solve this, I think, is going down the wrong, in the wrong direction. The United States, working with China, working with South Korea, working with Japan, is the only way of solving this. Uh, mm. particularly if there is going to be some form of military conflict, even if it doesn't go nuclear. And the second question, Mahmoud's question, I think, so the, 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 the biggest challenge, I think, here is whether it's possible to find forms of compromise that have to do with giving both powers what they want to have. You know, mm. is there some degree of overlap which can be acceptable domestically, I mean, as you have pointed out in your own work, that's a key element in this. But also that can be seen, at least up to a certain level, as fear within the region. Because without that, it is not going to work. Now, I've written about this in another context, that you, know, you can't expect to have a spheres of influence kind of peace in Eastern Asia now. It, it just doesn't work, because it's not just within China and, and Korea that nationalism has grown. It's true almost everywhere. You know, this is not the kind of 19th century situation where you can draw up, certainly within East Asia, you could say that you know, China and, and another power, in this case the United States, an outside power, can divide this up amongst them the way they want to see it. So three things we can do to try to overcome these challenges. The, first and foremost, the, the, the most important one, first and foremost, try to deal with those bilateral issues that exist between the United States and China that can actually be resolved, right? Uh, and there are quite a few of those, as I indicated in my talk. Secondly, to try to work through alliances, because the biggest advantage that the United States has in Eastern Asia is that its number of friends and allies are very, very significant, right? Mm. China doesn't have that. 
Um, China wishes that it had it, but it doesn't, right? So working through alliances here is very important in terms of trying to, trying to organize things. And then thirdly, to try to think about what kind of issues that are related to what we, you know, in an earlier age used to call security guarantees that can actually be given from the two sides, right? And here I'm thinking about issues such as strategic navigation, right? If China would only state its views on what it really wants to do in the South China Sea more clearly than what it does today, I think a lot could be overcome. Now, there are reasons why the Chinese do not want to do that, right? And these are not very good reasons, but, you know, they are there. Uh, but if that were to happen, I think a big step forward would be taken in terms of the ability of the two sides to work with each other. And then finally, cherries on domestic politics. Domestic politics are always important. I do not belong among those um, uh, historians who believe that, you know, in, in the in the, always the, the, the primater in the idea that everything that happens internally in a country is more significant than what happens externally. But I do think that in the particular case that we are in now, both on the U.S. and the Chinese side, it's very, very difficult to disregard what is happening domestically. As I said earlier on, on the U.S. side, I find it very hard to believe that Donald Trump will desert his voters in terms of what he will be seen as wanting to achieve. I'm, if he does do that, I think the results for him in electoral terms would be very bad, and he's, you know, he does recognize that. Um, on the Chinese side, there's also a real big challenge. I mean, it's a different kind of challenge. I mean, it comes out of the Communist Party having found a new form of legitimacy in nationalism. Uh, they haven't created nationalism in China, but they're riding on it, right? And they sometimes try to stimulate it in, in ways that are very counterproductive um, internationally. Can that change? Well, I think it can only change if China changes. I mean, I think, you know, if you, if you get... I mean, it might still be a dictatorship, but I mean, open and more inclusive regime in Beijing, I think there is a chance of actually dealing with this. Now, could that happen? Of course it could happen. I mean, other countries in Eastern Asia have changed in terms of their manners, their methods of, of government, and have changed without a complete breakdown. Um, South Korea, Taiwan, others. Um, that could happen in China, but I, I do think that is what it will take, it seems to me at the moment in order to deal with this on the Chinese side. So in a way, the Chinese problem on this is much bigger. It's much more structural than what is the case in the United States. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's have a look. I want to go upstairs. There's a gentleman up there. Um, I'll tell you what. Hi, guy. Come down to the front. Here's a chap got his hand up. Yeah. Just pass it along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just fine. Thank you for Anybody down here? Um, yeah, let's just take the guy over here. Yeah, please. Let's just take a few. Just take a few. That's what I'm going to do. Start up there, wherever you are. Yeah. Start. Uh, hello. hello. Um, I, I am Chinese, and thank you very much for this very interesting talk. Um, you mentioned that China is badly governed, and uh, we should probably look at look, be looking at a, uh, a a way that is more inclusive and open um, for us to be better governed. Um, do you have any specific uh, <laughs> recommendations? And also, and also, I'm asking this in the context of... Stop uh, there, by the way. I think that's a great question. I'm also asking this in the context of uh, Brexit and Trump. You know, how do we improve our political system uh, without the risk of putting someone who's totally ignorant in charge or committing you know, economic self-harm? Thank you. 
Um, and also on the uh, broad Third issue question, of... question, by the way. Oh, may I ask one more? Or... <laughs> I just wish you hadn't mentioned Brexit. That's <laughs> and also... Right, carry well, on, I did carry that. on, you're doing well. And also the, uh, on, the, on the very interesting issue of our allies in um, Asia, in the um, Asian region, mm. um, you mentioned the problem of ideology. Yeah. Um, the fact that us being an authoritarian regime somehow alienates people alienates the Philippines, alienates the Vietnamese, alienates you know, all these smaller countries in, the, in this region, even though I think China has been trying its very best to make it clear that we do not want to project uh, our own political system anywhere outside China. Right. Even, we're, even if we're trying to do this very hard, it still seems like we're trapped in this situation of us being somehow authoritarian and then people are you know, unfriendly with us, whereas by comparison America... Um, it seems like its liberal democratic regime kind of absorbs the aggressiveness um, of the country. Um, do you see a way for us to, you know, improve this situation? Good. Let's just That's think we're badly governed. That's I thought, a very right? good question. I kind of understood that, but great. Thank no, 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 that's a good question. Yeah, let's, let's um, up here, yeah. Hello. Um, yeah, so I want to ask a question for the non-capacity power, because we're talking about because of the capacity superiority of American states, uh, United States, then China shouldn't go to a war with them. But what about in terms of this non-capacity power, in particular the, uh, the legitimacy of China and how the extent of people perceive the Chinese model to be the right way and maybe the, um, the, the citizens' willingness to support China to be a superpower. Mm. So I was wondering, how do you see the evolution of China's non-capacity power has changed? Mm. And also, is the election of Trump pose a chance for China to have a more uh, non-capacity power? And maybe if there never be a possibility that China will have enough the non-capacity power to be a superpower, there will or maybe there's no country would have the enough non-capacity power to be the superpower we in the future. We've got a question on Trump there, I think. Yep. Uh, 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 who was over here? Somebody over here. Yeah, hi. Yep. Hello, Please. hi. Thank you. Um, so I, w I want to talk more about, as you mentioned, taking a step back you want to and ask looking a question. at the bigger pet picture. Yeah. Yes, mm. yeah. My yes. question would be... <laughs> Could you speak up a little bit? This, sorry? Could you speak up a little bit? Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, um, the way you look at the relationship between the USA and China... It, for this, as far as I'm concerned, is a matter of perspective. Fair enough. Mm. The other way to look at it, wouldn't it be two nation states trying to govern themselves to their own best self-interest? Mm. And at what point does it become, oh, my self-interest is more important than yours? Mm. I need to, I don't know, in a way, conform to your way. Mm. Or, and then continuing on with the other person as to what makes one right, what makes the other wrong... What, what is it a world now where only one system of governance is accepted and the other one is like, oh, wait a second, you're authoritarian. So at what point... Get, get it. Um, kind of yeah, live and let live. Accepted and, and at Can what point is a matter of conflict and yep. war. Okay, good, great. There's a young lady down the front here. Sorry? Yeah. No, 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 please use the mic, please use the mic, please. Is it working? Hello? Yeah. yeah um, you talked a lot about the Asian century, but then I, don't, I beg to differ because when you look at the defense talks Trump holds recently, it focuses more on um, Islam, the Islam problem and the Middle East. So do you think Trump, Trump and um, 
his regime will pivot away from Asia instead of staying in the region? Mm -hmm. And do you think it will focus less on the conflicts uh, in North and Southeast Asia compared to his, predece his predecessors? Mm. I think that's enough to start off with, right? Okay. That's the world. More than enough. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So these are really, really good questions. Now, on the, on the first one, which was really a three-part question. I'll deal with two parts, because if not, we will run out of time here. Now, this is really tricky. So a lot of Chinese feel, with some very good reason, that particularly after Brexit, uh, which is important in this context, might not be important in global politics in many other contexts, but it is important in this context, and the election of Trump, that you know, more than a few good things can be said for authoritarian government. But that's only when they do not remember the enormous problems that have been created within China itself by its form of authoritarian government. I mean, think about issues of freedom of speech, for instance. Um, not that all Chinese go around on a daily day you know, feeling that they're oppressed, but they like to voice their opinions. They, they, they like to be you know, like other people, to look after their own interests themselves, even vis-a-vis -vis their own government. Think about the issues of pollution, uh, think about the issues that have to do with the relationship between the center and the provinces. Think about the Chinese working class that basically do not have the rights that they ought to have and have in most other countries. So, I mean, there are lots of problems that will have to be dealt with and can only be dealt with, in my view, creating a better China through a China that becomes more inclusive. What would be my advice? The most important thing to start with is freedom of speech. I mean, I travel a lot in China, spend a lot of time there. I don't think people, you know, go around hoping for an overall change in the regime. That's not the issue. They want a regime that is more inclusive and they want the right to speak their mind. So, you know, that would, that's always my advice to the Chinese government. The, this is a, a party that could very easily, uh, if it set its mind to it, although time for it I think is running out, um, continue to rule China but in a, under a different kinds of circumstances, more effective circumstances for China's own growth than what is the case today. And they're not grabbing those possibilities when they are right in front of them. Of course, there are people who are saying that the Communist Party is sort of constitutionally incapable of thinking in that way. Look, you know, if that been the case, uh, think about, you know, how China's policies changed during the 1970s and 1980s in terms of the domestic build-up of its own economy. This is a party that's capable of changing. Not always in directions that most people would agree with, but it is capable of change, and it could do it in this case as well. Um, so um, the, uh, China's a uh, non-compatible power, the kind of concept of China, uh, both from within and without. Um, when it comes to the Chinese population, I think that the people that I speak to, and I'm not talking about fellow academics or policymakers, or, but, you know, the, I spend a lot of time in China and I speak to a lot of people who are outside of those sectors as well. The general sense I have is that it's not so much a wish for China to become a superpower of a new kind, to institute norms for others. I mean, your question referred to this. Um, as having a China that they can be proud of. I mean, a Chinese state that stands up for what they believe to be China's legitimate rights abroad, and that functions better than what it does 
uh, at the moment from within. I mean, it again connects the domestic and the international to me in a very, very meaningful way. And that's not something I think the Chinese um, government should be worried about. What worries me in this context is more what is happening on the other side of domestic politics. And it happens in particular with younger people, particularly those who come out of a privileged background, which is a kind of self-defensive mechanism on some of these things. Uh, An identification of the current regime with China. You know, when someone, particularly someone who is not Chinese, uh, speaks about the current regime in terms of what it needs to improve, they become very defensive over it, saying that's some kind of criticism of China. I find that even at Harvard, and a criticism of them, in a way. Um, that's very dangerous. I mean, it's dangerous, first and foremost, for themselves, because that's the, that's the way in which any ability to deal with your own situation in the domestic context that you have to live it out if these people return to China, many of our Harvard students don't. They are intense Chinese nationalists when they are at Harvard, and then they do not go back to China eventually, be that as it may. You know, it's a very, very dangerous situation to be in. So that's where I stand on the uh, non-compatibility kind of approach. I mean, China is not, in my view, by the nature of its regime, uh, dangerous to others, inherently dangerous to others. But it's a very bad advertisement for itself. And it it means that China doesn't run as well as it ought to. Um, U.S. and China, two nation states, um, trying to create more gain for themselves. I think that's true. But the problem, of course, is that when you are not just a big power, but you are giant powers like China and the United States, Someone has to be able to think more systematically about this as well. And that is the challenge for both. I mean, this is not just about China and the United States. It is about the future of the world. Uh, This is one of those differences that I see between what we're looking at at the moment and most other power shift kind of situations. There is at the moment, you could almost use the term, a certain sense of immaturity in terms of the approaches to central global issues that exists with the United States and China in terms of taking responsibility for the system as a whole. It does happen when one, when one power is declining and another one is rising. I mean, uh, Mick has written about this in the context of EHK. I mean, the, the, the kind of crisis that you get in the early part of the 20th century because there is no center to the international system, right? And that might be happening again. But only pursuing one's own gain is not the manner in which one can deal with that. And then finally, Islam and the Middle East. No, I I don't think so. I mean, I think um, this administration on the U.S. side, um, at least up to now, has indicated that they have learned enough about what kind of difficulty uh, the Middle East poses for U.S. foreign policy to recenter its foreign policy activities there. I think it's pretty clear we have some good indications now in the staff, in the, in the staffing of the National Security Council as well, that much of the interest will be directed towards Asia uh, and will in particular be directed towards China. How that's going to come out, I don't know. I mean, there might be. So, I mean, of course, we've heard U.S. presidents say this before, right? Uh, we all remember Barack Obama and George W. Bush saying, you know, we're going to deal with issues that are more significant rather than getting drawn into more conflicts in the <laughs> Middle East. And look where both of them, though, with slightly different ways, ended up. So that could happen with Trump as well. But I'm, I mean, betting on that, as some people do, both in the United States and in Asia, I think would be a dangerous proposition because we, that's not what we're seeing at the moment. 
Okay, we're going to take one more round of uh, questions. Uh, just get quick. There's, uh, so, uh, sorry, down here. I'd like to bring in Jonathan Fenby. Uh, and there's a gentleman at the back who I think is called Professor David Stevenson. Do you have your hand up over there, David? Sorry to favoritise all these wretched academics, but uh, they pay the bills. Uh, there's two there, and I'll take two from upstairs. If you could just find two people upstairs and just hand out your microphones. There's a chat. There's a woman. There's a lady here in the middle. Yeah, 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 where are you going? All right, all right. And a chap over here. Yeah? Have you got a microphone in your hand? Oh, that's okay. Right. Okay, where are we going to begin? Uh, Jonathan, go for it. Thanks. Arnie, um, I wonder, in a sense, going on from your penultimate answer there and from what Mick was saying earlier about China being the great US success story, could you evaluate or talk a bit about how strong you think the mutual interest between the US and China is, which clearly it's been a scratchy relationship ever since Nixon, really. But there's been a perception of a mutual interest, political but above all economic. Mm. Is that still a kind of glue that is there, or is that being frittered away? And if I could just ask a second, small supplementary has to do with this, do you have any idea who's running China policy in Washington? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. A Trump question. David. Yeah, my, my question is for Arnie is what you think will be the effects on um, Chinese-American relations of an expansion in American defense spending under mm. Donald Trump, and in, would the Chinese government be willing to lend to the American federal government in order to pay for it? <laughs> That's a provocation. Uh, upstairs, Who, who's going to go? Where are we? Come on. Um, yeah. Hi. Welcome back, Professor Westard. Thank you. Um, So you said at the end of your lecture that relationships are socializing because they create norms and these in turn create the constraints to prevent violence. So that's great. But what's the process by which these norms are created? Because isn't that predicated on the usurping power, the newer power, abiding by the pre-existing norms of the older power Mm. and leaving them unchanged or at least being quite passive about about this ideology? Okay. Uh, Was there another one upstairs? Yep, please, sir. Yeah, um, you, uh, m- my question is really about where you were talking about the risk of, uh, potential risk of war. Uh, and uh, with the anti-globalization sentiment that we're seeing across the West, uh, an increase, we talked a little about nationalism, but there's also an increase in protectionist policies, which obviously uh, erodes the uh, economic interdependencies between nations, which I would have thought would be one of the major deterrents to war. Uh, how much do you think that, you know, that, that sort of sentiment might might increase the risk of war. Great. I think we'll end with those questions, Arnie. Over to you. Thanks. So, um, as always, from, uh, from Jonathan Fembia, some really challenging questions. Is there enough of a mutual interest to still link this together? I think, on the face of it, that seems to be the case, right? Because we here have two powers that both have benefited very significantly from the current international system, especially in its economic form. And if I believed that these kinds of mutual interests, of which there are quite a number, would be enough to prevent conflict in other areas, then I'd probably sleep easier at night. But I'm not so sure about that. Um, And I become less and less uh, sure about it. I think... They do in in some instances. So, for instance, I talked earlier on about what could be possible ways of reducing tension in the South China Sea, 
Right. So, so starting to talk, which is not happening at the moment at all, about the real interests both of the parties that are there and of the United States in issues that affect the South China Sea, such as freedom of navigation, etc., etc., non-militarization, you know, that could push in the direction of people saying, both in Beijing and Washington, well, you know, this is an example of where mutual interests in terms of trade and in terms of security can pull us together, right? Because the two are linked in a way. But we do not see that, and we do not have many of these cases. Mm. And that is what worries me, in spite of the obvious mutual interest that there is. I mean, so people are saying, you know, in some people in Washington are saying, China wants to take control of the South China Sea in order to control the strategic waterways that go through that region. Now, if there were to be any kind of cutoff through any kind of conflict of those strategic waterways, the one that would suffer is China, because so much of China's own imports go through that region, right? Does that affect China's policy at the moment? Not all that much, it seems to me, unless the Chinese leadership believes that it can take effective control of this for its own purposes, which I don't think they believe, by the way. So who is running policy in D.C.? Now, this is, of course, the big question about the Trump administration. Um, I think at the moment, in terms of international affairs, there's a pretty clear direction that this is moving in, and that is, as it were, towards the generals and away (laughs) from White House civilians, Um, which I think overall, in terms of security, is a good thing, right? Um, uh, I met both... Uh, General Mattis and General McMaster, I think they are, they have a reasonable view of how things work, you know, the kind of understanding of, of the international picture. But that said, I also believe that both of them, in slightly different ways, are examples of people who would try very assiduously to find ways of carrying out the president's agenda. I mean, that goes in part with them having served most of their career in uniform. That's what you do, right? You obey the orders that you're given from above. You don't try to work around them. But also I think that both of them, again in, 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 in different ways, they believe maybe first and foremost in his focus on Eastern Asia. I mean, that's very significant for these two. They've had more than enough of Middle Eastern wars, Right? because they fought in them, and they're not going to go back there. And they want to think about this in a, broad, in a broad strategic sense. So if I'm right about this, in terms of where things are heading at the moment, this may change, but at the moment it's heading towards those two and what they represent, the Pentagon and, and the, the broad NSE stuff, then I think the refocusing on Eastern Asia will become even more uh, visible. David Stevenson's question about U.S. defense spending, that's, of course... Uh, uh, the big question in terms of the parallels that are drawn sometimes between Trump now and what has happened in the past. So Ronald Reagan came in in the 1980s and promised balanced budgets. He was going to cut, you know, uh, federal spending in in all fields and ended up running the biggest deficit budgets that the United States has ever known, in part because of his emphasis on military spending. And he got away with it. Now, What Trump is going to do on this, I think, is very uncertain. What he's trying to do at the moment is pretty clear. He's trying to cut down on almost all other aspects of the federal budget except what goes into the military. 
But that won't be enough, I mean, as your question indicates. I mean, you know, they still have to have someone to buy into this, in effect, from the outside, provide the credit for it, in order for, for even that limited agenda to happen. I think that what governs whether that's going to be the case is not so much, at this stage, international strategic politics as market developments. So if, as I think is quite possible, um, what is now called the Trump bump or the Trump trade in economic terms actually turns out to be more powerful than what most people expect. You will see a lot of people wanting to invest in the United States. And a lot of those people who would want to do that are Chinese. Right? This will help the American economy overall, and it will make more people buy uh, U.S. Uh, government papers of various sorts and therefore stimulate, in a way, the Trump military economy. Um, and as long as that happens, the going is probably good. And there is not that much the Chinese government can do to prevent that, unless it ends up in an acute crisis situation where China really wants to crack down on what is happening in terms of where its own money goes directly or indirectly. Um, let me see what, I can, what I've written here. Um, Yes. Um, let me deal with the, uh, the last issue first while I'm trying to figure out what I've actually written on the third one. So, in, actually, the two, can be, the two can be connected in a certain way, oh. if I understand it correctly. So, interdependence in a narrow sense and interdependence in a broad sense. And that is, of course, the big question mark that we have at the moment. Um, and it has gone as a thread through many of the really good questions that we had tonight. So is, to use Jonathan's term, is, you know, mutual interest going to save all of us here? Or is, are we going to see on a broad global scale a turn back towards underlining interdependence values um, and away from what we seem to see at the moment, which is to underline pretty petty forms of, of nationalism? What I'm absolutely certain of is that that won't happen without political action on the side of the people who actually stand for that. And this is one of my biggest worries at the moment. So when a lot of, a lot of people now who are discussing, you know, what David Stevenson here knows more about than anyone else, I mean, how the First World will happen, what are the similarities, that two new books you're start looking at the origins of the First World War and comparing it with the situation between China and the United States today. And one of the similarities that really worries me is the inability of people within the domestic polity to take the threat of conflict seriously early enough to be able to do something about it. I mean, the, this, is, this is the most worrisome aspect that I see today. Um, and, of course, the phenomena that we have seen of late uh, in this country and we've seen in the United States, the rights of nationalism, almost on a, in a global, on a global scale, is something that pushes further in that direction. So I think that, you know, if I have one message coming out of this, that's mm. probably it. You know, the conflicts do not just happen. Certainly wars do not just happen. Wars come out of people who oppose the direction that creates these kinds of conflicts, that these people are not taking action early enough to resist it. 
And I think, you know, people here, of course, some people come to LSE and speak to the LSE as if it were a British or English audience, which, of course, it isn't. This is an international group of people. But this is valid, I think, for everyone who is here. You know, the earlier one starts to confront these kinds of attitudes and point towards the values that has really sustained the security and the prosperity on, on a global scale, though it has been an unfair kind of system for many people. But the values have still brought us uh, a long period of great power peace. You know, if, if people start pointing towards that and away from what we see at the moment in terms of these very narrow uh, nationalist points of view, then I think we stand a much better chance than if people are saying, you know, let us wait a bit. Let us see what might actually come out of this. What are the opportunities for this going in one direction or the other? No, I mean, I think one has to take the threat that exists at the moment very, very seriously and take political action to move away from it. Uh, and I think if we don't do that, then, mm. then much of the lessons of the 20th century will be lost on us. Mm. Okay, Arne, I think that's a great place to end. I think we all discovered tonight how much we miss you ah. here at, at the LSE. I'd also very quickly like to thank the LSE Ideas team. None of this would have happened without Joseph, Adriana, and many, many others. So thank you, Joe, and thank you, Adriana. Thanks to you and all your questions. Now, there's, there is a, there's a tradition at the LSE that when you get very important speakers coming here, we try and give them a hat. <laughs> but I couldn't find a hat. No. Um, but I have a bag. Oh. Yeah, I know. It's I an ideas bag. Oh, that's even now, better. Please, it's an ideas bag. The only thing I'd say is, Arnie, don't put it on your head. Uh, it, 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 if a, it's a, raining, it's, as it usually is, so it, I Arnie, probably would. We don't do hats, but we do do bags. <laughs> so I wonder if we could all put our hands together and say thank you very much to Arnie. Hello, buddy. <laughs> thank you. There you go. <laughs> And you, you must carry that round Harvard all Absolutely. the time. Okay. Absolutely. And again, thank, thank you all for coming here this evening and do attend our future events. Thanks again, everybody. Thank you.